0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Emily Michelson about her book titled, Catholic Spectacle and Rome's Jews, Early Modern Conversion and Resistance, just out in 2022 from Princeton University Press, which is an incredibly interesting book about a period in the 16th century where Jews in Rome were forced every Saturday to attend a hostile sermon by Catholic clergy aimed, at least on paper, to force the Jews to convert to Catholicism. However, as this book demonstrates, there's a lot more happening um, around these sermons, within the sermons, within the careers of the people doing the sermons. Um, And there's a lot that we can learn from investigating this particular time and place um, about relations between Christians and Jews, about early modern Catholicism um, and all sorts. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Emily Michelson to the podcast to tell us all about this. Thank you, Miranda. I am absolutely thrilled to be here today. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure.
2: So uh, I'm a historian at the University of St. Andrews, where I study the history and culture of religion, mostly in Italy, mostly between 1450 and, say, 1700. And the thing that interests me most within that is the question of how religious cultures and societies develop, how they develop cultures of their own distinct from the cultures of other religions, how different religions interact with each other, and how those interactions change both sides. So religious groups and how they're influenced by contact with and ideas about other religious groups. I first investigated this pro, this these questions by writing about Catholic preachers during the Protestant Reformation, looking at how they were kind of in a tight spot, the Catholic churches, they're, they're like sort of Christian unity appears to be breaking up all around them. There's a Catholic leadership crisis at the same time. Uh, and there's also a lot of pressure from below from their um, congregants uh, to preach in a certain way. And I was looking at how they navigated all of those pressures. Um, I came to this book um in the course of writing that book, in in classic second book fashion, I found a source and thought, oh, this is is the project for the next book. Uh, I had been reading a lot of Italian sermons, and I came across this one volume of printed sermons to Jews. I had heard about these sermons, these forced sermons to Jews. There's a plaque commemorating them in the Roman ghetto. I had walked by it many times. Um, The book itself was compelling, And the occasion that it was based on, these public sermons, uh, was also very compelling to me. But the book also surprised me, this book of sermons, because the content of the sermons was really not at all what I had first imagined it would be. So I started to read a lot about uh, Christian interest in Hebrew and Judaism in this time to try to understand the gap between my own expectations and the sermons themselves, And eventually I realized two things. One is that these public sermons to Jews by Catholics aimed at Jewish conversion, that these sermons had a really important and unique place in the Catholic world, and that they served as a nexus for many other aspects of early modern life. Um, And secondly, that I was particularly well-placed to investigate this spectacle and to write this book, uh, because I had the training to understand textual sources and history on both sides. uh, And I felt that it was a story that I could tell compellingly and rigorously. And then I came across a sort of trove of overlooked sermon material and knew that I had uh, a really exciting book and that I had to write it.
1: That sounds like a great kind of combination of things to bring you to the book. Um, and it really highlights, I think, some of the the particular innovations and strengths of the book of the different methods and bringing all these things together that I'm sure we'll get into in a bit more detail, um, later on. Um, but to kind of start us off or provide something of a foundation for the rest of the discussion, could you also please introduce us to Rome's Jewish community in the period covered by the book? Of course. So, um, This is a period where there are not
2: a lot of Jews living all over. So in much of Europe, there's a very small or no Jewish presence, uh, but the Jewish presence is very concentrated in other areas, uh, famously Italy. Uh, Rome has the oldest continuous Jewish settlement in Europe. It's a Jewish community that predates Christianity and has existed continuously since then. Uh, And in the period that I write about, the late 16th through the early 18th century, it undergoes recent dramatic expansion because of the Spanish expulsions, the forced conversion or expulsion of Jews from Spain. And that means that the community in Rome uh, suddenly gets much bigger And it becomes a much more diverse Jewish community. There are a lot of different synagogues. There are a lot of different ethnic traditions within that. Um, So it is a rapidly growing population um, that reaches about
1: 3,000 people or 3% of the population of Rome. That's not insignificant. Um, And I think really interesting to kind of think about a diverse population, a recently, in many ways, probably traumatized population. Yes. Um, yeah lot, lots of internal conflicts going on as well about kind of how do we all live together in this new way etc yeah um,
2: that's that's not something it's something that's absolutely true and um jewish historians historians of judaism have certainly written a great deal about it it's not a factor in my book per se because i'm looking at catholic interactions with this community and the catholic interactions rely on a sort of homogenizing dehumanizing Um, sort of stereotyped vision of Jews, uh, which is something that plays into the sermons a lot, it's something that they are not really able to see. Uh, And there's a fair amount of
1: willful blindness involved in not seeing those things. So then on this side of the Catholic um, conversion idea, why was the focus on converting Rome's Jews in this particular period? Why did that kind of become such a thing that they focused on?
2: Right. So uh, I will refer you to the Counter Reformation as a big topic, uh, is what happens, right? And the Protestant Reformation uh, in addition. So there is this sense that, so without reviewing the entire history of both, uh, with which I know your readers will be familiar, um, we're in this period of Catholic triumphalism, Catholic survival, and global expansion and resurgence around the world and really prominently in Europe. And there is this drive to kind of demonstrate how successful the church has become or how much it has been through and how strong it is now, despite um, the fractures of the Reformation. Rome is the seat of Catholicism, both historically and symbolically. And in Rome, Judaism and Catholicism are equally matched. They have equal claims to antiquity and rootedness. And um, there's this sense of, well, I think there are two things going on. There's First of all, there's this urban sense. There's this sense of Rome as an increasingly important Catholic city. It's obviously always been important symbolically. But now you have a global Catholicism that, although it really is, Present on every continent, and many of its new innovations come from outside of Europe. The city of Rome likes to see itself as still the center of this growing network. And that means uh, that it wants to present itself as a living model of sanctity, as a pious and holy city. And it cannot do that if it is a city that is religiously diverse. Now, as it turns out, Rome is in fact very religiously diverse. Uh, but they want to present themselves as a model of Catholic holiness. And that draws, that in itself means that there's increasingly hostile attention towards Jews. So, for example, um, Venice has recently built a ghetto, and then Rome in the middle of the 16th century builds another ghetto. Um, and there's a Talmud burning, and, and there's the foundation of the House of Catechumens, which is... Uh, an institution that receives converts and potential converts and trains them for Catholic baptism. So you have that aspect of things. And also if from the triumphalist angle, there's this sense that Jews are the oldest antagonists of the church. So if you can convert them, it's a kind of, I'm trying to find a non-sweary way to say this. Um, it's a coup I suppose it's a a, a coup um, kind of with an eye to the Protestant Reformation right both Catholics and Protestants go to some efforts to convert Jews because like that's converting somebody who's a religion that's even older than you are that's the greatest validation so there is this sense that um, if you can convert the Jews then first of all you've purified your city and second of all Um, you've accomplished something that's kind of inherent to the entire existence of Christianity, the entire raison d'etre of Christianity in many ways. So, but all of these things kind of come together to put a lot of focus on the Roman Jewish community in particular. And all of these, of course, are factors that are generated by the Protestant Reformation, by Catholic resurgence, um, and not necessarily by anything that the Jewish community has done itself, except that it is also growing in this period, and so it is more populous and more visible.
1: And there, are, as you already said, there are very few other Jewish communities in Europe. Um, so there's probably not many other places that one, the Catholic Church could do this kind of thing.
2: Not with as much continuity or as much success as
1: they do in Rome. That is true. So, what then can we learn, given kind of this wider context that's not really in response to what the Jews have done? it's kind of because of these wider factors um what can we learn about early modern Catholicism from these sermons? Oh, so much,
2: <laughs> but I think I actually should probably go back and just tell you what the sermons are a little bit um, so you, you did refer to this in your introduction, but uh what happens is that. Um, there's, these sermons are institutionalized every Saturday afternoon um, which is obviously the Jewish Sabbath so day of rest nobody's working, nobody has an excuse not to be there um, they set up these public sermons that take place outside of the ghetto um, and they bring in a preacher and he preaches for an hour or two on why rabbinical interpretations of the Bible are wrong and why Christian interpretations are correct. Um, And these sermons take place in public. They are attended not only by the Jewish community, but they're also attended by the neophytes and catechumens who are studying to convert from Judaism to Christianity They are also attended by local Roman citizens. Uh, I have read diaries where people say, today I went to the sermon in St. Peter's and the week before I went to the sermon to the Jews. Um, And they're also attended by tourists and visitors to Rome. So all of this is really taking place in a fishbowl context. uh, And they go on really from the late 16th century through the 17th century and into the late 18th century. And they're really, um, they kind of fall off at the end of the 18th century. They're revived in the 19th and they're not actually abolished until the middle of the 19th century on the eve of Italian unification. Uh, so it's clearly an event that has tremendous meaning for the people who organized it, although maybe not for
1: everybody who attended it. And so, what then does this tell us about kind of where Catholicism is at in this period. So as I said,
2: we can learn a huge amount from these sermons um, about early modern Catholicism and because they offer this unique platform. So one of the things that we come to understand is just how important these sermons were because they draw in a wide network of institutions and people and religious orders and patrons and congregations and religious brotherhoods from all across Rome. They all kind of invest in these sermons. They see them as a really good thing. You've got the, the Jesuits, which is a brand new order, helping to set them up. You've got the oratorians, who are another brand new order. Um, all, of these, all of these groups are like, let's do this. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. And that tells us that they really saw this as kind of a success symbol, as a big kind of feel good spectacle um, where they could tell themselves that they were winning at religious conversion. Um, That is one of the things that it tells us. And in fact, in that sense, it's very successful because if you look at travel accounts of visitors to Rome, Protestant and Catholic from other countries in this period, this is one of the things that they come to Rome to see. This is a spectacle that's not available elsewhere. uh, And it becomes one of the ways that these tourists and travelers define the city of Rome. They say, oh, the city of Rome where you can see sermons to Jews. Um, So that tells us how important this spectacle is. Um, It also tells us that there aren't a lot of opportunities within the kind of Catholic liturgical system within um, sort of Catholic ritual life. There aren't a lot of opportunities for sitting down and thinking about who are we now after the council of Trent, after the counter-reformation, after global expansion, uh, after the Protestant reformation, what does our religion look like now? If there aren't a lot of opportunities to discuss that with ordinary parishioners um because it's a church that prides itself on continuity, and it doesn't have a lot of opportunities to discuss with people sort of what they're supposed to know, but maybe it, but maybe they haven't been taught um, and these sermons kind of address all of those gaps, so what I like to say is that they become a really critical platform for defining the new Catholicism of the early modern era and defending it against other um, forms of Christianity. Because we find those topics in the sermons. We find, um, and this is part of the manuscript discovery that I mentioned earlier, um, we find this preacher saying, here's why you should believe in saints. Here's why saints are a good thing. Um, Here's Here I am trying to understand um, the expansion of Catholicism across the globe. Here I am trying to understand why Islam still exists, given that we think it's wrong. All of these big fundamental questions get, get asked in these sermons in ways that they can't be asked elsewhere. Uh, and I will also point out that it is very surprising that this happens because... Um, In fact, the formula for the sermons is meant to be very narrow and very intellectual and cerebral. Um, But it turns out that often they are narrow and intellectual and cerebral. And then uh, at other times, they become this platform for really understanding what early
1: modern Catholicism is and trying to convey that to a wide variety of listeners. Thank you for explaining kind of the the spectacle, really, of these sermons, which on paper, it sort of doesn't make it sound like it would be a tourist attraction. But as you have just described to us, and of course, in the book, art can go into lots more amazing detail, there really was such a diverse audience, and it really was a tourist attraction, which is kind of odd, because you also explain in the book that the sermons themselves, the content, you already sort of described them as cerebral, uh, followed a pretty specific formula that honestly doesn't sound that compelling. So given that you've sort of explained to us sort of the fishbowl and sort of the atmosphere of these sermons, can you maybe tell us a bit about the kind of content and way the sermons were created? Of course. So, um, these sermons draw,
2: they are a big spectacle, um, but, But the content, as you say, draws on a very long tradition of uh, sermons to Jews, disputations with Jews that actually starts uh, in the Middle Ages, and in that sense is very limited. So, and it's further limited by the fact that the papal bull that mandates this preaching, this weekly preaching to Jews, also in fact mandates the content. Uh, So, These medieval disputations and further hindered by the or narrowed by the papal bull basically say that what the preacher needs to do is to refute rabbinic readings of the Bible uh, and replace them with Christian readings and to dwell on the main tenets of Catholicism. So the Trinity, the virgin birth that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus um, will return, right? So Trinity, Mary, and virginity uh, are these topics that recur over and over and over, uh, basically saying to this audience, you read the Bible this way and reject these things. Your rabbis knew that this was a wrong reading. They knew the truth of Christianity. They deliberately hid this from you. and you are also stubborn and willful um, that you refuse to accept the truth that we are now presenting to you. And this makes you awful people, uh, but you should still convert and accept these truths. So it is both ritualistic and formulaic and also hostile. Uh, and that was what surprised me originally, because I tend to think that if you're trying to persuade somebody to adopt a position, that you flatter them into that position. Um, you don't, scold them into that position. Um, And I think that this distinction matters because one of the kind of points in the background here is the forced conversion or expulsion situation that we had in late 15th century Spain. Uh, There's an argument that in Rome, they're looking at what happened in Spain, they're seeing that it didn't actually go so well in the long run, um, in terms of the forced conversion and the kind of doubt about authenticity that resulted. And so in Rome, they say, you know what, we want to convert the Jews, but we want to do it not by force, but by persuasion. Sermons are clearly persuasion, right? Sermons are, um, they're cerebral, they're verbal, there's no force, there's no compulsion. Um, So these sermons exist as a way to suggest that the conversion of the Jews happens for intellectual reasons, for theological reasons, and out of free will because they are persuaded. That is kind of the premise of these sermons. It doesn't really hold up as a premise, first because the sermons themselves are actually fairly hostile, Second, because they are forced to attend them, and they're forced to attend them in this really degrading way with everybody staring at them. They're forced to walk in a procession uh, from the ghetto to the building that houses the sermons. People laugh and spit and throw stones at them while they're walking. We know this because uh, it's very frequently prohibited to do these things, which means that it's still happening. Um, And these sermons also mask a huge conversionary campaign that is, in fact, much more violent Um, there are sort of forced offerings of unknown of unborn children. There are midnight raids on the ghetto. Um, There's a lot of hostility. And so this whole concept of conversion by persuasion, which these sermons embody is actually, I think meant as a kind of mask to hide a much more um, multi-pronged and um, hostile campaign to convert the Jews or at any rate show that you've tried as hard as you possibly can to convert them.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, particularly given the wider context that you describe in the book around, um, the conversion of the Jews, it's not just these sermons and kind of the orchestration around them. You also talk about, um, the role of some more dramatic episodes as well. Um, and how violence is involved, how things are happening on the street. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about the pig and the other dramatic contextual things happening around the actual occasions of the sermons. Yeah, so the pig um,
2: is is the most exciting thing I've ever found in an archive. Um, Although other people have also found this pig, but not a lot of people have written about it yet. And it's this case Uh, which you would think is unconnected to sermons, uh, but it's not. There's this case of a man who is really immersed in the Christian study of Hebrew, which is a well-developed intellectual field. There are chairs for it at universities. Um, There's a whole network of Hebrew professors uh, in all of the major institutions in Rome. right? It's a really respected intellectual field. And here's this guy who is Involved in that field. He also likes to go to um, synagogue services on a Saturday morning and yell at the rabbi and tell him that he's wrong and the Jews are misguided. Um, so he's a bit of a, of a loose cannon. And when the chief rabbi of Rome dies, and this is in the middle of the 16th century, there's a funeral procession from the ghetto to the Jewish cemetery. Um, I know Christians bury near or in churches, Jews bury far away in a separate space. Uh, So there's a long procession, uh, which is a very vulnerable moment because you have a large group of Jews leaving the ghetto together en masse at a moment um, where they're grieving. And that puts them in a vulnerable position. And this guy uh, disrespects that moment, you could say, by building a... By creating a counter procession uh, to go alongside the, the, the funeral procession. And where the funeral procession has a coffin, this guy builds a wooden box and puts in it a live pig. And the box has a removable lid. And he gets a whole bunch of boys to go with him. And he writes this very long, elaborate poem, um, which is a mixture of Hebrew and Italian And it's a really nasty poem about how bad, how black the soul of this dead rabbi is and how much it resembles the pig in the box. And as the Jewish mourners are walking along in procession, he walks along alongside them. uh, And he has, when they stop, he stops and he has his boys sing this song and he opens the coffin and the pig sticks its head out. Uh, So it's really horrific. And um, what it's, tells us is that there isn't really a fine line, a clear line between hostile speech and violent action, because this is a violent action that is predicated on a huge amount of scholarship and a huge amount of writing. Um, And the story has come down to us because it's in the papers of one of these uh, super intellectual Hebrew professors who deals in Jewish books and, um, is part of this really intellectual circle across universities and institutions in Rome. And he writes down the poem. He has footnotes. He has transliterations. He has, um, the, he has little explanations of what the words mean in this song. And he keeps it in his papers. Uh, not the guy who actually composed the poem, but someone else, this, this professor who approved of it, um, preserved the entire thing um, with approbation, right? Like this was this great thing to do. So it tells us that the world of Hebrew scholarship, Christian Hebrew scholarship, and the world of intellectual interest in Judaism, um, which is the world that generated sermons to Jews, also approved of violence against Jews. Uh, we also see that kind of much more closely linked in another case. Uh, one of the preachers who preached in the early 17th century and who's one of the most famous of the um, of the preachers to Jews is known for writing these very kind of mystical intellectual treatises. Um, He's sometimes seen as the person who's least hostile uh, because the things that he published based on his sermons to Jews are, you know, he has a, he has a treatise on the Trinity, right? It's very, um, it's very intellectual, but he is the same preacher who, on at least two occasions, organized midnight raids in the ghetto to steal young children whom he believed had been offered to the church for baptism and take them away from their families and put them in the house of catechumens uh, and baptize them before their parents could get them back. So again, um, this sort of intellectual learned veneer um is not in any way opposed to direct physical violence against Jews.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just 2 minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are 2-minute meals. slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Those two cases in particular make that very, very clear. And I think it's quite an interesting way to understand the context of what's happening. That it's not just, the book doesn't just kind of go, okay, here's a book of sermons and I'm going to analyze each single one of them. And I it really, kind possibly of, analyze each single one of them. i found thousands and thousands of them. <laughs> right, well, it wouldn't make necessarily a very interesting book either. Um, so I was wondering if we could maybe kind of pick up on a thread that you mentioned in your introduction to talk a little bit about sort of how you approach this book and sort of the idea of the, what methods you used and how you put this together and what kind of contribution this allows you to make. Uh, yeah, thank you for asking that question because I have thought a lot about um,
2: how to structure a book like this um, because there's... There's a huge amount of manuscript material that I didn't really discuss, right? So I found there's there's this one preacher who preached for 39 years. He left all of his volumes in manuscript. Um, I would guess it's about five thousand large pages of manuscript. And I had looked at every page, but I couldn't do a study, I couldn't do justice to everything that I wrote and also context to, that I read and also contextualize it. And I didn't want to write a book that was just um, the history of these texts. Um, So what I was really striving for was a balance of three things. Um, A lot of archival research in order to reconstruct the whole spectacle of these sermons from all of the angles and all of the ways that they mattered to people. So looking at the finances of them, um, looking at the correspondence about them, looking at, as we'll see in a moment, resistance to them, um, so there was this archival research part. There is a fair amount of textual analysis and trying to figure out how these sermons managed to operate on many levels for many audiences at the same time. And in the middle of it, uh, I wanted as much as possible to bring this spectacle to life because its main function was to be a spectacle. And I wanted to try to recreate that on the page. So, Obviously, the pig story has a lot of prominence in it. Um, The Midnight Raids have some prominence as well. Um, Any kind of good story that I found, um, I tried to highlight it because I didn't want the texts to be separate from the worlds in which they were created. Um, Lots of historians find ways to do this, uh, but I'm really proud of how it came out in my book, uh, so I wanted to draw attention to it. And I also... um, wanted to write a book that was relevant to Jewish studies, but also could not be ignored uh, by historians of early modern Catholicism, uh, which is the camp that I was trained in. Uh, There's a lot of evidence that uh, books about early modern Judaism get read by scholars of Judaism and not often enough by other people. And this is really a book about Catholic reliance on real Jews and on imaginary Jews on thinking about on Christian ideas about Judaism. uh, That and I want to say that you cannot understand certain aspects of early modern Catholicism without looking at this form of engagement with Jews and understanding uh, how much that engagement mattered. So trying to kind of open up the methodological ghetto even further uh, that that has been there for a long time.
1: Well, I think um, as from a reader's point of view, I mean, just to, I guess, a bit of a sneak peek for listeners who then go on to read the full book, um, the story of the pig is what opens the book. And in a lot of senses, as a reader, you come into this going, okay, Princeton University Press, you know, Dr. St. Andrews, all right, this is going to be like an academic study. And it absolutely is. It's incredibly rigorous. And there's all sorts of things going on. And it also opens with, like, essentially this cinematic experience of being on the ground, on cobblestone streets, watching these competing processions, going, oh, my God, what is happening? Um, And so the the idea of kind of bringing all those things together and also doing it in, like, an actually manageable number of pages, which is also an impressive feat, um, I think really is quite significant, um, even without thinking about in terms of bringing different literatures together, uh, which I'm glad you also highlighted, because I think in a lot of fields in academia, um, kind of debating between balance between different forms of literature and how do we deal with historical silos, etc., is something a lot of us are engaged in. So I'm really glad that you um, highlighted that. And it does seem like a good thing to be proud of. Um, And I think a lot of us can learn from just from a purely kind of practical sense.
2: Thank you for that.
1: Um could I add another thing that I'm proud
2: of <laughs> right? so this is sort of the flip side of uh, of the Catholic perspective that I bring to it, which is that um somewhere along the way, I was able to see in the largely in the marginalia of these sermons and in scattered documents uh in the archives that the Jewish audience and the Jewish community of Rome, a hundred percent resisted these sermons in every way that was available to them, consistently over the entire period, and that's a story that had not been told really fully before. Um, the sermon: we know that there was a lot of resistance to the first preacher who ever tried this, and there's some, in, there's a fair amount of knowledge about some of the 18th century attempts, but what I was able to see is that it was systematic, that there was no, so, you know, There are there's a lot of history that um, presents a sort of victimized view of Judaism. And that's not what we're seeing here. Um, we see a longstanding tradition of regularly refuting the text, going up to the preacher and saying, you said that and you interpreted this passage this way, that's not at all how we read it. That's wrong. Um, we see passive resistance, right? So making noise in the sermons or pretending to fall asleep. Um, and we see really active learned resistance where um, somebody writes treatises saying, "You, your preacher has crossed a line. You need to rein him in. This isn't what we agreed on. We agreed so far and not further. Um, so although these are sermons that have this is a spectacle that has a huge weight for Catholicism and doesn't have a huge weight for Judaism. It's a huge oppressive burden, but it doesn't have a lot of... Uh, you know, it's not high stakes, really. It's not high stakes, really, yeah. Uh, nonetheless, there is ongoing consistent resistance by a wide variety of means.
1: Mm.
2: But I, I was resistance throughout. And I'm really
1: happy that that has come to light. Mm. I was particularly amused by the kind of forms of resistance, Um, even just the two examples you just gave of, on the one hand, like really intense intellectual, you know, chapter and verse refutations and arguments, and at the exact same time, like organized campaigns of let's all pretend to fall asleep, um, (laughs) which was really kind of clearly demonstrated the idea of kind of using all of the options of types of resistance, that it wasn't just left to like three rabbis or something. Right. Which means it's across the community, right? The more learned and the less learned. Yeah, which was quite interesting. Um, But I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about kind of, um, although it wasn't high stakes sort of theologically for the Jewish community, um, as you've just mentioned, it was obviously a massive oppressive burden to be forced to go do this. Um, Though not every member of the community had to go every week. It was still a really long-standing thing. As you said, it went all the way until Italian um, unification. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about kind of the price that was paid by the community to kind of be the center of this spectacle.
2: Yeah, so um, the price in some ways is literal. This is funded
1: um, by
2: Jewish money in the sense that um, they are forced to put up the money for the benches that they sit on, um, for use of the space, uh, and when they are, when they, the, there's this sort of coercive environment around the sermons, where, as I said, they have to march in procession, uh, and with this jeering, mocking crowd, and then when they get to the sermons, there's a guy at the door. He's quite often a convert who knows the community, and he has a list of that week's rota of who's supposed to be there because there's a, there's a whole system of which synagogue is going to send how many people that has to be submitted in advance with a list of names. Um, And somebody at the door has that list of names and he checks them off against the people who come in the room. So you can't send a substitute. You can't skive and not go that week. If those things happen, then there's a fine imposed and that fine goes directly to the house of catechumens to fund Jewish conversion and, um, and new converts, so um, there is an emotional price to pay, and there is also a um, a financial price to pay, and there is the price of being consistently and publicly degraded um, on top of all of these other degradations, this increasingly crowded ghetto, the fact that um, they're kind of exposed to the the vagaries of the Tiber river, which they live right on, um, the Talmud burning, the increasingly repressive legislation and the increasing kind of violence around the house of Catacombs, and this process of, um, forced, not forced baptisms, right. we dubiously for unforced I mean, baptisms. Um, and all of that kind of comes to a head here because it is the most repetitive and most public of these forms of oppression.
1: That's rather a lot of prices um, for a community to pay, especially over such a sustained period of time. Um, and But also in a lot of ways really highlights um, something you said right at the beginning of the idea of the book is to bring both sides together in conversation, not just telling the Catholic side of this or just the Jewish side of this, um, but both and also kind of the points at which they meet and what that friction uh both kind of was doing but also literally what it was like and those kind of details of like the convert stood at the door checking people off the list um you know tells us a lot in terms of literature and scholarship but also is very evocative you know we can imagine visually what that looked like and what that must have perhaps felt like week after week year after year
2: i forgot to say he goes around with a stick beating people up if they um, if they resist, if they fall asleep, if they appear not to be listening, he hits them. Yep. So that's a, another price to pay. Yep, it
1: it's another price to pay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. Well, we've we've talked rather a lot about this book, and there, are, I think listeners um, can understand kind of why I was so excited to discuss it. There's a lot of different things um, going on here. Um, but you also are working on a number of other things. So before I ask you to briefly tell us about perhaps your next project, um, is there anything else you'd like us to know about the book? Um, it's reasonably priced. <laughs> That's a great thing to add. Um, um, it's a fantastic
2: cover. I, I love the cover. Um, it kind of encapsulates everything that I wanted, um, sort of all of the emotions. Um, and so the cover is, is of the painting that people in the room would have been looking at during the sermons. And it says a lot about spectacle and about positioning.
1: Um, I'll just tell you that to tempt your listeners to go have a look at it. Um, Perfect. Um, well, yeah. while, while, they, while they think about that, um, is there anything you are able to maybe tell us or tease us about, about what you might be working on now or next? Um, So the main promise that I can make is that it is not a third book about sermons,
2: having written two, uh, but I am certainly uh, remaining interested in these moments of interfaith encounter, moments where religious cultures shape each other, um, and I'm increasingly interested in the role of space and mobility uh, in that process. So how the space you're in defines the interactions that you've had and the context that you bring to to each interaction. Um, and that was inspired in large part by these processions of Jews walking to the sermon and likewise by, um, the processions that Roman citizens take around the city and kind of make it into a devotional landscape. Um, so how those sorts of actions influence people's understandings of their, of their religious traditions, not simply in Rome, but much more broadly. Um, so that's, that's all I can say about it right now.
1: Um, that sounds very, very interesting.
2: Good. Yeah,
1: it's at the exciting new phase. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that little teaser with, it, uh, with us. Um, and best of luck with that project. While you are off investigating, um, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which, as a reminder, is titled Catholic Spectacle and Rome's Jews, Early Modern Conversion and Resistance, just out in 2022 from Princeton University Press, Dr. Emily Michelson, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
2: Miranda, thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.